Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back. Lots to get to. Okay, first of all, let me bring up a couple of things regarding the last episode. When it comes to the business of sovereign citizenship, quote-unquote, as I said in the last episode, I'm not an expert on it, not by a long shot. There are people who know way more about it than I do, of course. And uh, yeah, as it turns out, according to Steve, who has been on the show, he emailed me and was discussing this a little bit at length. He basically said that this is also a giant con job, that there are a lot of people who are spreading the message of sovereign citizenship being a real thing and forfeiting your uh, your birth certificate in XYZ for X amount of money, along with all this paperwork and so on and so forth. And how basically it's, yeah, it's a con job. Um, I have no reason to doubt that it isn't a con job. It, it very well may be, and it very well could be. Like I said, I'm a novice on the issue. It's not a process that I'm interested in going through. I'm certainly not going to go through it because I'm not interested in it. Um, on top of that, you know, I don't necessarily make the recommendation that people do that. You clearly saw or at least heard about in the last episode what happened with Chase Allen uh, regarding, again, his communication approach with the police officers. And, of course, him believing that he was a sovereign citizen or didn't require all the necessary paperwork, so to speak, that most of us, of course, are required to have, and that didn't end well for him. So I've seen it go lots of different ways, and I've seen it go lots of different ways long enough to understand that it confuses me to death and confuses me to no end. What I do know for a fact, of course, is that from that moment that we are born and attached to our mother's umbilical cord to the moment that that cord is cut, to the very next moment where a birth certificate is issued to us because we are identified by name, by the parent, and then our footprints are, of course, taken, and all of that is put on the actual birth certificate itself, we become basically property of the government. So then we, of course, have to jump through all of the government hoops when we reach particular ages and so on and so forth. So that's a fact, but... uh apparently the sovereign citizenship thing, again, potentially being fraudulent or actually being fraudulent is quite the, quite the rabbit hole. And I have no reason to believe otherwise. So if you're interested in diving down that rabbit hole yourself, go for it. Uh, that's a rabbit hole I'm going to stay away from just because I have other things to cover and I have other things to do. But like I said in the last episode, I'm, I'm not an expert on it by any stretch. I was just looking at that particular situation more from a uh, police violence, lack of communication aspect, and when you throw the potential for a sovereign citizen to believe that they have the upper hand in such a situation, well, when you come up against government, you're going to find out that maybe you don't have the upper hand. And there you go. Okay. So with all of that aside, again, I, I highly recommend people look into it and dot their I's and cross their T's to find out whether or not, again, it's legit or fraudulent. My money is more on the fraudulent end, but then again, I haven't gone down the rabbit hole, like I said. Okay, let me get into this, because there is a ton of education things here, and I know that everybody's talking about the banking collapse, and rightfully so. It's a, it's a big deal. But of course, as you've heard me say a million times on this show, because it is the basis of this show, is education and the education avenue. 
If you think of the banking collapse very briefly, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but if you think of it essentially as as what it is, and I've heard people refer to it in a number of different ways, an upside-down pyramid is, is how Cliff High described it, and I like that description as well. I've heard people, again, describe it as, uh, as a fountain, and, and closer to the, to the neck of the fountain you are, the bigger the bank is, and then, of course, the further outside of the neck of that fountain you get, you end up with smaller banks. I, I, I just think that one of the things that's not being discussed with any regularity are all of the government entities and state level and local level entities that are dependent on all levels of those different levels of banks. And as you've heard me say time and time again, that education is one of those threads that runs through numerous banks, certainly numerous levels of influence and financial influence. If those pillars of financial influence crumble and start to disintegrate, those who have influence over education will not have quite the foothold that they once had because they won't have the money to back what it is that they're trying to do. Even grant writers, they're going to have a harder time finding grant writers and uh, individuals to provide the money for said grants when it comes to, again, their degenerate policies or whatever it is that they want to accomplish in education. All of this is a very good thing. All of this means, again, that the Department of Education, of course, doesn't need to exist. And I've brought, all, again, numerous reasons as to why that's the case on this show. But what that will, of course, do is drive the local decision-making to become more radical. That's going to be its own separate war. And there's no doubt about that. It will become even more corrupt at the state level and even more corrupt than it already is at the local level because, again, we're talking about thieves. We're talking about individuals that have agendas and they need money in order to accomplish their, their end goal. So here's what I want to do just quickly. I, I want to bring up two examples, again, that sort of combine both the banking and the education in, in one, where you can see the cause and effect. Cliff High, in his most recent episode on BitChute, and again, I, I listen to a lot of his stuff, and you know, he he date projects like nobody's business. He says, "Well, around this time, this is likely to happen, and around this time, that's likely to happen." And I don't agree with him on everything, but he makes a lot of excellent points, and it's not any different than anything that I've brought up on this show. And again, I don't necessarily think that you have to be in the education business to know the financial connection to education, but he, of course, started to describe colleges and universities the same way that I have on this show, which is, or actually, the well, the example he used was, it's basically like an upside-down pyramid. He said at the university levels, what you're going to end up with, which is what already is going on and has been going on for quite some time, certainly now, thanks to the jabs and all of the mask mandates and, and you know, the the requirements to enter the university setting, uh, certainly to have the jabs before you can show up or even apply, is that it's essentially an upside-down pyramid in that the people at the top are the administrators and they're paying themselves the most, and that the people at the bottom are the students and they're receiving the least. Now, of course, they're not receiving money per se, but they're having to pay more, they're having to do more, and there are less of them. 
an upside-down pyramid is not structurally sound. Never has been, never will be, and it's, not, it's just not going to work. That's why these universities are making the moves that they're making when it comes to lifting their mandates, lifting their requirements, getting rid of the testing requirements to attend. They're weakening uh, the application process as well. This is something that's going to continue to happen because they're downstream from a financial collapse where the banks and the state governments that hold them afloat are crumbling. As a result, they, of course, have to do whatever they have to do to reorganize, and they're panicking, and rightfully so. There isn't any chewing gum they can stick in the crack of the dam that's going to fix the problem, though. The damage is already done. Now it's just a giant cleanup. And in typical education fashion, they're going to use all the phrases that they use, like saying, well, we're being proactive, and we're not reactive, and we want to get ahead of this, and this is what we do, and so on and so forth. It's, not, it's just not going to work. They can't keep erecting buildings on their campuses. Spending the CARES Act money that they spent, which was in the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, they weren't allowed to pay off debt with that money. I'm sure some did, because it's a criminal organization. Why wouldn't they? But they weren't allowed to pay off debt. All they were allowed to do was make upgrades or spend it on brand new things that didn't exist in the first place. So if they wanted to put a new roof on a, on a new university building, they could with that CARES Act money, you know, because of COVID, because of the pandemic. Everybody needs a new roof. Everybody needs new windows. This is where the money went. And then, of course, it went to particular programs and people to teach or support those programs because it was something that never existed in the first place, which again was Marxism. It's just new Marxist programs and ideologies and so on and so on. So that has a lifespan because if you don't have students showing up to do those things, you can't have the program. That's, that's one of the dead ends that these universities are figuring out the hard way. And as you've heard me say, the jabs are the thing that run right through all of it. They have jabbed what percentage of the American population? We really don't know. I've heard projections of 60% are jabbed. I've heard 70% are jabbed. I've heard upwards of 70% are jabbed. Again, this is not a sustainable system. To use their word sustainable, it, it just isn't. And, it, and, it, and it's not going to work out. And even Cliff High said that. And he also added this, which again, you've heard me say. It's almost like he listens to my show again. He said, you have a failing banking system and you have raised tuition. Well, actually, I said this, I think not him, but you have increased tuition. You have increased interest rates. Even individuals who may have once been able to pay in cash or pay monthly for their tuition or yearly for their tuition up front, they can't do it anymore, which means they're stuck. So now they have to rely on a bank to give them a loan at a ridiculously high interest rate for an exorbitant amount of money. To do what then? To show up at a college or university that either has or does not have a jab mandate. And some of them, of course, as you've heard me say, you have to take three jabs in order to attend. Whether those are in place or not at this point is almost irrelevant. 
it's it's a financial problem at this point. Families can't afford it. Parents can't afford it. You can't work a nine to five job long enough in order to attend a brick and mortar college or university, not to mention the cost of living, et cetera, et cetera. Online education is the only way forward, and online education is the only way that a brick and mortar school is going to be able to survive. And believe me, many of them are dreading that day. They're dreading it, just like the American K-12 school is dreading having to go to an online environment. This is turning into an inevitability. It's becoming inevitable that they're going to have to make this move because no one's showing up anymore. Now again, I'm not I'm not projecting my own belief system on on this discussion. I'm really not. I'm just looking at all of the bullet points and all of the evidence as objectively as I can. Now yes, in the back of my mind do I really want the entire system to crumble from an education standpoint absolutely. However, if I put that away, and you just look at the bullet-pointed evidence that I've brought up on this show, it's the only direction. It's the only thing that's logically likely to happen. Again, whether the individual who wants to attend college directly out of high school, their family's going to have to look at them and say, look, maybe you just work for a while and you put off college. Maybe you work for a few years, and then you go to college you know, when you're 20, 21, 22 years old, and then you get a degree, and then you see if that's what you want to do. The longer a person is in the workforce out of the age, out of high school at the age of 18, the less likely they are to go to college. That's not a bad thing because they end up working. And when they're working and they're making money and they get into that routine of working and making money, again, even if they're living at their, their parents' home or a family member's home or whatever it is that they're doing while they're doing all of that, that's better than than going into debt that you're never going to be able to pay off at an exorbitant interest rate where you're not going to receive a degree that's going to get you jack squat when it's all said and done. It is an upside down pyramid, but for, not just for one reason, for a thousand reasons. And this is, a, again, this is a good thing. It's forcing the individual mentally and emotionally to take control back from the Brainwashing, for lack of a better phrase, it's just the full-blown indoctrination brainwashing that we have that we have been the victim of regarding all of these institutions and these institutions shaking each other's hands, uh, you know, behind closed doors in in shadows for well over a century, and it's and that's coming to an end, and people are starting to wake up. Now, here's the second part to this. Which again is just more evidence of, of proving my point here. The other day, Sicily in New Mexico sent me a text uh, describing a number of things that are going on in, in her old school and certainly in her old district. She sent me a photograph too, a screenshot of the jobs that are available in the school district. And there are many of them. In fact, an acquaintance of hers that I believe she used to work with basically stated that they had to fire a teacher because they were having an affair with one of the custodians in the building, which is hilarious. And then they found out that, again, I guess in the uh, 
what was it, during a fire drill, they found out that the teacher wasn't with her students during the fire drill, and they opened up the door, and there were just students there, and the teacher wasn't even there. Her acquaintance told her that they can't even afford to fire teachers anymore, even though they ended up cutting this person loose, which, of course, they should have done. But she sent me a screenshot, again, of the number of jobs that are available, and there are many. There are district office jobs that are available. There are uh, elementary, middle school, high school jobs available, as you would expect. They're, they're clamoring for substitute teachers. And again, I think this is just one screenshot, but I'm going to count the jobs here because there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Everything from bus drivers to, again, school nurses, English teachers, math teachers, special education teachers, a woodworking teacher, uh more elementary school teachers, they need a custodian at the high school, apparently. I mean, this is, this is the case in every school district, certainly within every county, depending on how they break them up. It's happening in, in almost every single school district across the United States for a variety of reasons, all of which I've brought up here. Again, when you're running a business and you have society as a whole, the evening news, cable news, social media, endless individuals constantly criticizing and scrutinizing that particular business on a constant basis. It can't survive, certainly not from a moral or value-driven angle, I guess. And now, of course, with the banking collapse, the way that it is continuing to go, and it will continue to get worse or better, depending on how you look at it, it's better for us. It's worse for the brainwashed people who don't understand what's going on. But institutions like this are going to feel the pinch even more, which means other individuals who send their children to these environments much like the university setting, are going to feel the financial pinch even more. What's that going to cause K-12 schools to do? They're going to they're continue to throw levies on ballots because they need more money. Less people are showing up. Less people want to work there. Their product is trash. And, and that's just the way that it is. Again, I've made loose comparisons to other lines of work, but very simply put, if the American K-12 and university setting was a t-shirt shop where all you did was sell t-shirts, very straightforward, you print things on t-shirts, you sell the t-shirts, the customer goes you know, about their business. The customer will come back if the product is sound. If the product is not sound, the customer will never return. What the customer will also do is they will tell everybody to never go to that particular place ever, and they'll list all the reasons why. They don't have enough t-shirts, their t-shirts aren't the right colors, they're not the right sizes, they don't print the right messages on the t-shirts. Uh, when you throw the t-shirts in the wash, they disintegrate, they're too expensive, it's run poorly, it's dirty, and everybody makes fun of it. That's the American K-12 and university system in a nutshell. And when you strip them of the money, of course, they're charging more for their product. Even though it's quote-unquote free, people are finding out 
that the American K-12 school system is not free. There are actually dummies, and I can't believe this is happening, but they're spending copious amounts of money just to have their child play a sport. It blows me away. Wouldn't that be the... I mean, it wouldn't in the mind of a brainwashed parent or a brainwashed child or a brainwashed family. And, and you've heard those, those wails of those parents on this show before. My kids will be devastated if they don't get to play sports. Oh, God, they'll be so devastated. When you hear them and, and, and you hear those emotional outbursts, again, those are people that are stuck to the matrix. There's no getting out of that for them. Life can't exist without a ball. They need a ball in their family, like when they were toddlers and beating around a ball all the time. This has to consume them. And they, and, and they are willing to spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars every year per child, just to have them continue to go to the brainwashing apparatus that's charging them money to play a ball sport now because the K-12 school district is running out of money and doesn't have enough money to do other things. This is the codependency of abuse. And it's awful. And it happens a lot, certainly now, in the K-12 and university setting, and we're seeing it. And again, you know, this is the other, this is the other thing, too, which is really abusive, and I've brought this up previously too, but just to kind of round this out before I get into other examples and, and a lot of education news I have here is that endless parents will, will cram the sports agenda down their child's throat for the purpose of gaining a scholarship. And that if they and, and that, that is the only way our child can attend a college or a university if they are on a sports-related scholarship. You've heard me bring it up before. That is not true. That's not true. More and more universities are going online. More and more universities are doing these kinds of things on, at the online level. I mean, I even heard Jim Jordan say this, and he, and, you know, he openly admitted it on the record during one of the, uh, I believe it was when he was talking with Matt Taibbi and the other guy, uh, you know, who were releasing the Twitter files. He openly said, he goes, look, I went to Ohio State and, uh, and I was an economics major. And then he stopped himself and he goes, well, let's not kid ourselves. I was a wrestling major. I just happened to take economics. I mean, it was, a fun it was funny because he's, he's right. He's right. If you're a quote-unquote athlete and you're going to college, you're not going there to learn anything. You're really going there to play a sport. That's the agenda. But that's becoming, my overall point is, it's becoming not just financially inept. It's becoming, um, oh, I don't know, beyond, <laughs> how, do I, how do I say it? It's becoming short-sighted. It's beyond myopic. It's so narrow-minded and narrow-viewed now that, that to actually do it, you almost look foolish. Because it's just not the thing to do in this time. We're watching again all of the pillars of what we've known in the past crumble to the ground because they have to, because we've been enslaved by it. But you're going to consistently watch individuals try to hold up these giant pillars of corruption and debt and money laundering and brainwashing and so on and so forth. And uh, 
there's only so long that we can shout from the rooftops before that you know, for you to run away before you're the only one holding up the pillar and then the pillar falls on you and crushes you. So the pillars are going to continue to crush people because they're not learning. They're not taking again that 40,000 foot view and standing back and looking, looking at the entire picture. They can't see it. They're, they're too down in it in order to see it. But if they slow down and they just stop for a while, it's inevitable that they'll see it. But that's a matter of wanting to do all of that. And unfortunately, many don't. But it's not, like I've said, you know, it's not going to matter. They're going to have to see it eventually because, again, if you get on a college campus and you look around, there's no one there. There are less and less people there, and that's not an accident, which is why behind closed doors, they're making the moves that they're making because they're becoming insolvent. And I love it. Okay. With that said, I wanted to revisit this very quickly based on the Stanford University Law School uh, speech blow-up thing that occurred that I brought up in the last episode. Apparently, a apology letter has been issued by the university to the judge who attempted to speak and give a lecture, and it says the following. This was dated on March 11th by the president, uh, Mark Tessier-Levine, if I'm saying that correctly? Probably not. Uh, It says, Dear Judge Duncan, it says, We write to apologize for the disruption of your recent speech at Stanford Law School, as has already been communicated to our community. What happened was inconsistent with our policies on free speech, and we are very sorry about the experience you had while visiting our campus. It says, We are very clear with our students that, given our commitment to free expression, If there are speakers they disagree with, they are welcome to exercise their right to protest, but not to disrupt the proceedings. Well, that's an interesting line. It says our disruption policy states that students are not allowed to, quote, prevent the effective carrying out, unquote, of a, quote, unquote, public event, whether by heckling or other forms of interruption. It says, in addition, staff members who should have enforced university policies failed to do so and instead intervened in inappropriate ways and are, that are not aligned with the university's commitment to free speech. We are taking steps to ensure that something like this does not happen again. I would like to know what those steps are. It says, freedom of speech is a bedrock principle for the law school, the university, and a democratic society. We don't live in a democratic society. We live in a constitutional republic, or at least we're supposed to. It continues and rounds out, and it says, And we can and must do better to ensure that it continues even in polarized times. Polarizing times? With our sincerest apologies again, the president and Jenny Martinez the Richard E. Lang Professor of Law and Dean of Stanford Law School. Um, I put the letter up on Gab. My interpretation's pretty simple. Somebody's going to get a slap on the wrist. That's about it. And who knows? Maybe it'll be a little more diversity, equity, and inclusion training for everybody, which they'll certainly love and enjoy. It's a mental institution. That's all. These people are certifiable. All of them. He issued this letter because he didn't want to get sued. 
he may still get sued. Policies were broken within. A head probably won't roll as a result of it. Like I said, somebody's wrist will get slapped and that'll be the end of it. The constant thing to remember, of course, is that image protection is their number one priority. This blew up. It absolutely blew up. There would have been a time where at a college, a university, or even a K-12 school setting, if an administrator had behaved the way that the black female administrator behaved when they showed up into the room and then started to lecture the judge who was attempting to give a speech while coming to the defense of the whack job students who were there, that individual would have been fired. Because bad press is something that these university settings cannot stand, and K-12 school districts don't like either, and they do everything they can do to avoid it. And firing these individuals and sending a message is one of the ways that they would do it. The reason that it's allowed to exist now is because the Marxism is so pervasive, not just through the institutions themselves, but the press. They have the mainstream press, for the most part. What they don't understand is, is that it is us, the anonymous Americans, so to speak, although I'm not anonymous, but countless people are, these individuals do the digging on these stories and then bring it to the masses because we outnumber them. We have the numbers. We have the guns and the numbers. We, we have the message, we have the truth on our side, and we have the means of utilizing the internet in a way that they cannot, which isolates these whack jobs into their mental institutions for us to just basically constantly criticize, highlight, and expose. That's an excellent thing. But again, it's the, it's the, the mentally ill within these environments that have no idea that we are in fact in control. That we can put enough pressure as, as a small group of people, even an individual can put enough pressure on an entire institution in this day and age. So we have the advantage. There's no doubt about it. Doesn't mean we're going to win every battle. We certainly aren't. In particular, if you go up against government, you're not going to win many battles. But when you go after an institution like this, you can at the very least squeeze an apology letter out of them. And then who knows? Hopefully it just, uh, you know, it talks somebody off of the fence if they were thinking on going to Stanford and now they've decided that they don't want to because of these kinds of things. That would, that would be a good thing. So there's that. Okay, here's the next thing. This comes out of Missouri having to do with a K-12 school district. And this one is interesting. There's a one minute audio from their local news affiliate that I want to play here because there's more to this story than what meets the eye. Um, Lots of different angles on this one, which is, which is weird. It's titled, Large Numbers of Teachers Absent at Ferguson Florissant High School. Now, there are lots of reasons for this. Initially, you would think illness and jabs, and you would be right. That's part of it. But there's more to it, and it has a lot to do with violence as well. Again, these are all the bullet points and all of the check marks, all in one environment that is leading to its collapse because, again, the news is covering these outlets as if they are all terrible places to go because they are terrible places to go. And in this particular story, you actually have individuals voting with their feet who work within the building because the buildings are unsafe. 
or certainly at least one high school, is remarkably unsafe, and a lot of the people inside have had enough. And I'm telling you, if you want real change, so to speak, you walk away from the thing that refuses to change. And then you will see absolute panic, just like what we're seeing at the university level right now, with many of them dropping their jab mandates. So give this audio a quick listen and I'll jump in at the tail end. School leaders worked hard to keep classes staffed after a large number of teachers called in sick. Fox News Patrick Clark looks at what happened and why neither side is calling it a sick out. Ferguson Florissant school leaders had to fill in for 37 absent teachers on Thursday at McClure High School. This comes a day after a school board meeting Wednesday night where staff raised concerns about violence and drug use at the school. A union rep said teachers have been hurt by unruly and disrespectful students. Thursday, Dr. Joseph Davis, superintendent of the Ferguson Florissant School District, shared a message with families and staff saying, quote, we want to make you aware that we had 37 teachers absent today due to a combination of teachers out for conference attendance, illnesses, and other unforeseen absences. Last night, when we saw the number of absences, the district took the proactive step of having district administrators, as well as our principals and staff members from other buildings, assist in providing classroom coverage and hallway supervision for the day. We had sufficient coverage for all classrooms without the need to double up classes. A spokesperson for the district had no further comment. In Florissant, Patrick Clark, Fox 2 News. Isn't it beautiful? It's just beautiful. It's the definition of a cave-in. It's a complete and utter cave-in. It's amazing. They all decided to vote with their feet. They probably, many of them talked with one another. They said, we saw the board meeting. They're not fixing, any, fixing anything. Forget it. We're going to start using our sick days. And we're going to use them all on one day. And that'll be that. Maybe we'll use two in a row. Maybe we'll use three. We'll use whatever we're allowed to use within the confines of our contract. But we're going to use them anyway. And then the entire district management just all panicked. There wasn't any learning taking place in that building the very next day. It just wasn't happening. It says this. It says, again, it came after the day after a school board meeting Wednesday night last week where staff raised concerns about violence and drug use at the school. It says the union representatives said that teachers have been hurt by unruly and disrespective students. The superintendent, again, shared their message, which you just heard him say, blah, blah, blah. And again, he uses the word proactive. He believes that being reactionary to a bunch of teachers saying that I'm not going to show up to work today is proactive. That his reactionary response of pulling in teachers' aides and district employees and secretaries and having them monitor the halls or even sit in in a classroom, that's his definition of proactive. They don't even hear themselves talk, ladies and gentlemen. They're so brainwashed with the Marxist lingo that they just say it all of the time. They write it in their memos. They write it in their emails to parents. They just put it out there, and they have no idea that anyone with a brain in their skull can see that they aren't being proactive about anything. If they were really proactive, this wouldn't be a problem. They would be kicking children out permanently for drug use and violence. 
they would be using the PA system in the school building to tell everybody if you're violent toward your teachers or you in, or you are engaging in drug use or you're violent with anyone in this building you're going to be expelled permanently and you'll have to find another means of indoctrinating yourself because it's not going to be here they could do that but they're not even doing that they're just constantly you know i don't know sweeping up the crumbs of their crumbling business and there's not a single thing that they think that they can do about it but they can but they they don't know how and it doesn't deserve to get fixed so yeah that's glorious and yes i'm certain that uh, some of them were, were out sick i think less of them were actually attending any kind of a conference I, i'm sure that was just an excuse there may have been one person but they made it sound like it was lots of teachers who who were not there because of a conference. Uh, it's ridiculous. They're fooling somebody, but they're not fooling everybody, and they can't keep trying to fool people. Eventually, people are going to become wise to their tricks and their nonsense, and it's already happening, which is great. That's an awesome move, though. I love I love it when people vote with their feet all at once and send a clear and concise message. It's perfect. Okay, Donald Trump gave a speech just the other day in Davenport, Iowa, and I have a few bullet points of some things that he brought up regarding the subject of education, because again, it was all around social media. He's going to make comments on education and blah, blah, blah. Um, Again, we've heard him talk about eliminating the Department of Education. He claimed he was going to do it the last time when he was running in 2016. and. that didn't happen. In fact, if memory serves, he was going to combine the Department of Education with the Department of Labor and another department. I'm not sure what the other department was, but I do remember him saying that. In any case, he's he's not he's not getting as descriptive as I would like, and he's and he's not advocating for all of the all of the proper things that I would like to hear him advocate for. But let me at least run down through a few of these bullet points. And again, these were just a few of the notes that I took when I watched him, and I'm sure I missed a bunch, but these are just some of the comments he made. He did say that he was interested in not providing any money to any school who impose mask mandates from K-12 through the college level. He also said the exact same thing for vaccine mandates, everything from the K-12 level all the way through college. That's a big deal. That's huge. That's a big deal. That should send a chill down the spine of all of those institutions, and rightfully so. It should also prove to every single parent listening to that comment that every single college, university, and K-12 setting that did such a thing was breaking the law. Because the word mandate, legally, does not mean mandatory. I've been over this before. Lots of people have now, thank God, because they can read. The word mandate means voluntary participation. It just meant that when they imposed a mask mandate, they were giving people the option to wear a mask if they wanted to. That's That's what they were doing. And I'm telling you what, it just continues to shock me that that K-12 schools, colleges, and universities either thought that they got away with it, they think they'll get away with it in the future, they're slowly backing out of it now like a weasel, just weaseling their way back from 
poisoning countless people to death and saying you can't come here if you don't poison yourself to death. It's a, it's just astounding. These criminal organizations, ladies and gentlemen, they are criminal organizations. Run away. Run away. Another point he brought up, he said that he would impose an executive order that defunds any school that pushes critical race theory and other things. I I wish you know, I wish that there was somebody a little more knowledgeable around him who would who would explain the dynamics of word usage. It's not just critical race theory. He should say critical theories, all critical theories. All of these, I mean, and then just run down the list. DEI, SEL, uh, cutting your genitals off, transgender this, rainbow flag that. I mean, he could get as specific as he wanted to, but there's just kind of these blanket statements from time to time when he could really send the fear of God through these institutions and these people. Um, yeah. He also said, again, as he has said numerous times in the past, that he would eliminate the Department of Education. He said it could be done quickly, and that uh, that's, that's something that, that could exist. Again, it, w- it would have to be more than an executive order. It would have to be law. There would have to be the passing of law, which I know I think Thomas Massey has put forth to elim- in Congress to eliminate the Department of Education. That, that would have to be approved by the House, the Senate, and then signed. You'd have to get rid of it that way. And as you've heard me say, what would happen after that would be, I mean, uh, it, would, it would be astounding. I have a smile on my face. Because it would be both beautiful and chaotic at the exact same time. Eventually, the dust would settle. But what would happen at the state and local level with the Department of Education blown to pieces would be, um, it would be next level indoctrination. If you think that they are in fifth gear, pedal to the floor, gay agenda right now with the brainwashing and everything else, buckle up because it would get way worse for a period of time before, again, the dust would settle and then uh, serious local local movement would have to take place in order to take back the institutions. But as you've heard me say, there's no point in saving them. There's absolutely no point. But yes, the elimination of the Department of Education is, a, is certainly a must. Um, he also then, when he was done sort of with his education comments, he said, we'll take some questions from the audience. Let's go ahead and give some people a microphone and blah, blah, blah. The first, the first person who, who asked him a question was, was a female. And I'm not going to play the audio, but y- you can imagine this, I'm, I'm sure. She basically said, again, it was, it was a bit pathetic, but it was kind of like, when can we get back to the basics? You know, what can we do? What can we do, Mr. President? What can we do, government, to take back control of, of our schools? What do we have to do to get back to reading, writing, and arithmetic? And he helped her finish the sentence and said, Yeah, I, I fully understand. He, he didn't provide an answer to that. All he said was, is he just reiterated her question as fact. That yes, we have to get back to that. There, that we have to get back to the basics. We have to do this. We have to do that, ladies and gentlemen. If if I've heard the line, we have to get back to the basics in American K twelve public private charter schooling. If I if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that, 
I would have dump trucks filled with nickels. And I've heard that phrase and that saying since, my God, since college. And certainly since I became a school teacher a long time ago, when I was one. I heard it all the way back then. It's not something that's going to go away. This business of getting back to the basics is something that happens in the smallest of private schools that do not engage in any drop of the woke agenda, but those schools are few and far between. The only other place it doesn't exist is within homeschooling curriculum. Again, Donald Trump had an opportunity right there served to him on a silver platter to wake up the masses. He could have done it right then and there. I, can't, I couldn't think of a better opportunity. And I would have told him if, you know, I were, I were some advisor or, or something, I would have said, we're going to give the microphone to somebody. They're going to ask you as a government person, what is it that government can do for us, for us to take more control of our children's education as the parent? I mean, the question was pathetic. Because it implies, again, that the parent is relying on government to provide them the education that their child apparently needs. It was, it was teed up for him perfectly. The ball was huge, his bat is way bigger, and it was on a nice tee right in front of him. He could have knocked it out of the park by saying, I suggest you homeschool, because if your child can read and write, they can teach themselves. The applause that would have occurred in the room would have been extraordinary. But that's not, that's not what he said. All he did was reiterate what the woman asked, which was, yes, we need to get back to the basics, reading, writing, and arithmetic, I totally agree, and blah, blah, blah. You can't keep saying that line. And you can't keep saying that and expect anything to change. Again, he had an opportunity, and he missed it. Anybody else in that room, if they were awake, they could, have, they could have said, government education has not, is not, and will never be the answer. That independence is the answer. And we need to homeschool our children and watch these institutions cease to exist. That's the ultimate answer. He could have said that too, in one degree or another. At, again, at the very least, he could have advocated for homeschooling. He could have said, you know what? The state of education is rotten to the core. I don't think it's going to get fixed. It is the worm in the apple, and the apple is gone now. Uh, my recommendation is that the American family consider homeschooling and look into homeschooling. There are endless homeschooling programs that exist abeca.com, calverteducation.com individual investigations, reading. You can use those as supplementary curriculums as your children, again, if they are old enough to read and write, they're old enough to teach themselves. He could have done that. And if anybody associated with him is listening to this, which is not likely, that would be my recommendation. He needs to start advocating for homeschooling and, and, and mentioning that. And he can do it subtly. I mean, he has the ability. We've heard him bring up a lot of other things from a subtle nature, um, you know, that were 
that that had big implications. But he he needs to he needs to start doing that because you can't say things on one end like I want to destroy the Department of Education. Oh, by the way, we need to fix our local K twelve schools. <laughs> I mean, you can't do both. You can't. Let's get back to small schools in towns, preferably in the home, where parents are taking the full and utter responsibility to investigate themselves about the truth about the world we live in and then bring that to their children. That's the responsibility of the parent. It's never, nor should it ever have been, the responsibility of government. And unfortunately, Generations of people have been brainwashed into believing that's the case. It is not the case. Again, there are endless K-12 school teachers, and they are out there who are teaching currently, and they know that it's the parent's job to do the teaching first and foremost on every subject matter. These teachers do exist. I was one of those teachers. I would look at the parents in my open house when they would show up into my room and they'd say, so what are you going to teach our kid? I had a giant presentation, very direct and straightforward as you would expect, and I would always say, but it's your job to teach them this. It's your job as the parent to teach them this. I take a back seat to all of you. There are subjects you don't want them to learn, then you teach it to them. If you don't want me to teach it, you do it. In fact, again, I advocate that you teach them all of it. I'm just here getting paid in case you want me to teach particular things or not. So that's my two cents on that. But, you know, he had an opportunity. I, 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 wish, that, uh, I wish that the advocating for homeschooling would increase in the coming months and certainly in the coming years. It has to. There's no other way or else we're just going to be repeating history, ladies and gentlemen, and repeating the decisions made by human beings in history, and that hasn't worked out for anybody. And it's not going to work out in the future. So that's my quick summary on some of his comments there. Okay, here's the next one. And I've been meaning to get to this, and I didn't the last couple of episodes, but I'm going to get to it now. Um, actually, before I do that, let me do this very quickly. This was just sent to me. This also was from last week. And you've heard me again, even in this episode, talk about how the SAT and ACT are being removed from a number of universities. Ladies and gentlemen, this was just thrown to me from a family member. Uh, Columbia University has just announced that it is permanently, permanently eliminating the SAT and ACT test scores as a part of their undergraduate admissions process. Columbia University. It says the first Ivy League school to go permanently test optional. Columbia issued a slippery statement about making admissions nuanced, quote-unquote, and respecting varied backgrounds, voices, and experiences. Of course, they're doing this for another reason, which is that Many black students, Mexican students, and illegals are not taking the SAT, ACT, and they certainly aren't passing it with any regularity. So, yes, are they bleeding students as an institution? Without a doubt. Do they want the, we'll say, unqualified potentially coming to their institutions so that they can suck money out of them? 
and then uh, and then spit them out with whatever I don't know what whatever indoctrination they they end up with for, for either the short or full length of time that they're there. Absolutely, they want to take full advantage of as many people as possible. And if they drop one of the parameters that keeps them from taking advantage of people, then yes, they're going to do that. Amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It should piss off every single person who's ever had to take an ACT or SAT test, whether they've had to pay for it, panic about it. There are students who have, who have killed themselves. Students have killed themselves because they did not get the ACT score or SAT score that they wanted in order to attend Columbia University. That has happened. It's happened with numerous universities. I didn't get the score I wanted. I can't take it in time. I'm not going to I'm not going to get into the school I want and then they hang themselves. Well, now you don't have to take it. Oops. Oops to all those people who killed themselves cuz they didn't get the test score they wanted. Because they didn't get into the school they wanted. They've even made movies about that. I mean, all the movies that have been made about getting appropriate test scores in order to attend particular schools and the pressure that all of that entails and all this other societal pressure nonsense. It's amazing. They also said in this article from, uh, let's see, gunrightsactivist.org. And the article, by the way, is titled College Industrial Complex's Left-Wing Lies. It says, expect other colleges to follow. It says Elon Musk commented Saturday that very few Americans seem to realize the severity of the situation. <laughs> yep. Yep. No doubt. Miguel Cardona blasted the higher education's industry of unhealthy obsession with selectivity and that he has urged a focus on upward mobility. See, they're both wrong. They're all wrong. Um. Let me see here. I think it even says MIT is going to do it. A quarter of students admitted to MIT in the fall of 2020 scored a perfect 800 on the math SAT, and none scored below 700. But uh, I bet it's only a matter of time before MIT gets rid of it. I mean, they're going to fall like dominoes. Look what they did again with COVID. They all fell like dominoes regarding that particular indoctrination policy. It's going to happen. It's going to happen with every policy that they have. You heard me say in the last episode, Miami University has has continued their uh, their policy on eliminating the SAT and ACT through 2026. They're going to make it permanent. If Columbia University makes it permanent, why would anybody else have it? Again, they think that this is going to increase their enrollment. No, it's going to increase laziness, mediocrity. And jabbed people. It's not gonna. It's not gonna work out for anybody. Um, but again, that's the reason why they're all wrong in this situation from multiple angles. They have no idea that it's it's not gonna matter what they try to do to fix it, whether they call it well, we're trying to be more equitable, and that's the real reason why we're doing that. That th- that's not it. They're inviting. They're inviting mediocrity. But they think that the test mattered at one point, and it didn't matter. But now it doesn't matter, but not for the reason that really exists, <laughs> which is that the tests don't matter. 
they're eliminating them because no one's taking them, passing them, and they're bleeding students. I love it. It is another example of the collapse. Okay, here is the next thing. And I've been meaning to bring this up, but I'm going to bring it up now because, again, you heard me say that I was going to cover this at length. Uh, my apologies for dropping the ball on this a little bit, but this has been hung up in the courts. And now um, this is beyond relevant. The Crumbly case, ladies and gentlemen, the Crumbly case against the Crumbly parents. Of course, the son has pled guilty. He's going to jail. That's, that's inevitable. That's going to happen. There will be a sentencing hearing with that. There won't be a trial because he pled guilty. Uh, and then he'll be sentenced to whatever he's sentenced to and then game over for him. And rightfully so, he was the one who pulled the trigger. In Michigan, of course, if you're unaware. Uh, let's see, in the Oxford High School there. This is from the Associated Press from last week, and it's titled, Court Considers If Parents of School Shooter Can Be Charged. This is not going well for the prosecution. This is working out exquisitely for the defense, and it should. You've heard me from the start. I'm on the side of the, of the crumbly parents. They had nothing to do with this. Going after the parents was purposeful. It was designed to set a precedent to eventually go after all parents, specifically regarding guns, and then go after all gun owners, etc., etc. I'm going to read through this because there's a lot of telling there's a lot of telling comments here. And it's pretty evident I think that the judges know exactly what's going on. They know that this is beyond extraordinary that even to bring charges like this are beyond reckless. So here's what it says. Again, this is from the Associated Press. Prosecutors on Tuesday defended charges against the parents of a teenager who killed four students at a Michigan school in 2021, telling an appeals court that extreme drawings of the boy's fascination with guns should have been a wake-up call on the day of the shootings. What, of course, is hilarious is that it was not the parents who saw these. It was, in fact, the school employees, and it was the school employees that never searched the kid's bag, and it was the school employees that broke policy, and it's the school employees who be, should, should basically be put on trial uh, for negligence or some involvement, not the parents. Uh, let's see. It's as a three-judge panel heard arguments in a groundbreaking case that could send James and Jennifer Crumbly to prison if they eventually are convicted of involuntary manslaughter for the acts of Ethan Crumbly at Oxford High School. So this is, again, the preliminary hearing as to whether or not it can go to trial. It's not, it's not going to make it that far. Ethan, 16, has pleaded guilty to terrorism and murder and could be sentenced to life in prison without parole. He probably will be. Uh, it says, quote, charging the parents of a shooter is rare and frankly it should be, said Joseph Shada, or Shada, an assistant prosecutor in Oakland County. Quote, it should be reserved for egregious set of circumstances, an extreme set of facts. <laughs> well, yeah. He's trying to make it stick. It's not going to stick. The Crumblies have been ordered to trial in suburban Detroit through the case, though the case was suspended in November when the Michigan Supreme Court called a timeout and told the appeals court to take a look at the charges. That right there should tell people. If the Supreme Court is going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, appeals court, you need to get involved here. This is, this is a problem. We, we can't do this. 
because again, it's it's never happened before. Th- that's that's a dead end for the prosecution. It says the appeals court challenged lawyers on both sides, but seemed to sharply question the couple's lawyers more. Well, I don't know about that. Again, I wasn't in the room, but it seems like it's not working for the prosecution at all. Keep in mind, this is coming from the Associated Press, so we know that they have a lien. Uh, one judge, for example, said this. They said, quote, there were warning signs all over the place, and then it says dot, dot, dot. At the end of the day, aren't we looking at foreseeability more than anything else to determine whether there can be criminal liability that attaches, Judge Chris Yates said. Judge Michael Riordan, if I'm saying that right, noted that James Crumbly bought the gun for Ethan, who was 15 at the time. Judge Christopher Murray said the first thing, quote-unquote, the father did when he heard about the shooting was go back home and see if the gun was there. So what? So what? Everybody knows that Ethan took the gun from his dad, and and you can't legally own a gun if you're 15 years old. Ethan couldn't legally own it, and he didn't. It was the parent's gun. Now he could they could have they could have bought it for him quote unquote like saying hey this is yours you can use this when we go out shooting but legally it's of course ours because we're over 21 I mean anybody knows that uh it says earlier on the day of the shooting the crumblies were summoned to school for a meeting a teacher had discovered a drawing of the gun pointing at the words the thoughts won't stop help me again the parents didn't see this the school officials did though the school apparently didn't demand that the Crumbleys take Ethan home. He subsequently killed four students and wounded seven other people with a gun that was in his backpack. Quote, there were a number of ways in which they could have exercised ordinary care to prevent this. The, prose- the assistant prosecutor said they could have checked to see if he had the gun that they just gifted him days earlier. They could have simply taken him home from school. They did none of them. See, again, that's all things that the school should have done because the school didn't know about the drawings or the parents didn't know about the drawings. They didn't know about him, him writing these kinds of things. No one checked his bag. Uh, let's see. It continues. Defense attorney Marielle Lehman said the school's concern on the day of the shooting was that Ethan might harm himself, not others, and should not go home to an empty house. Quote, it was not foreseeable from the drawings on the homework that he was going to later carry out a premeditated murder of those students, Lehman said. Co-counsel Shannon Smith had a similar message saying it was, quote, nowhere on their radar. No kidding. And again, it would have been different had the school employees had checked Ethan's bag. Because I don't think that the parents would have assumed that Ethan was going to take a gun to school. It's pretty clear that, you know, somewhere along the line, it was probably said, don't take the gun to school, or you know you can't take this gun to school. I mean, even if it wasn't said, Ethan should have known better. He was 15, but the kid wanted to kill somebody and kept it from people. It says, quote, I will concede that these parents made tremendously bad decisions, Smith said, but criminal trials for criminal culpability are not based on whether parents make the right decisions, unquote. And there you go. 
Another judge also said, quote, there are a lot of families with kids who might not be as stable as the parents would like them to be. And then they said, what's going to be the guidepost that we lay out for other cases to follow? Is it the kids bullied in school, comes home complaining about that, lock up all the guns, question mark? Is it the kid seems down, make sure the kid doesn't go to school, question mark? And that's the end of the article. Those two comments by themselves should indicate that the case should not go forward. Just shouldn't. I don't know if the I don't know if when they squash this case, which they'll have to do, there's no way it can go to trial. I would be shocked if it does. But and if it did go to trial, I'll I'll do my best to follow it like I've said in the past, but at the same time it wouldn't surprise me if the prosecution and the prosecutor's office would try to find some other charge, parental negligence or, you know, something like that. Not, not like it's really going to matter necessarily. Again, their son is in prison for life and going to be in prison for life. So I, I, I don't know what else to really say. I just don't see it going forward. And the judge has brought up a couple of very good points. What kind of a precedent are you really setting here? And you talk about cramming up the courts with nonsense because parents weren't paying attention to what their kids were keeping a secret. I mean, now we're charging parents because they're not telepathic. It's a dangerous precedent, and it, and it needs to be squashed quickly. You got to hand it to them, though. They tried. They pounced all over a real school shooting, not a fake one. They, they pounced over a real one. Because keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, we're not hearing about this regarding Sandy Hook or Uvalde, are we? No one went to jail for any of that, did they? Weird. It's almost like because none of those happened. Because they didn't. Okay, jab-related things, just a few things here. Number one, if you're going to watch an episode of The Five Docs on Rumble on the Critically Thinking channel, I recommend you go back and you watch last week's episode. It was just between Dr. Lee Merritt and Larry Pilevsky, Dr. Pilevsky. The two of them do a very nice job of getting into a variety of subjects, in particular Dr. Malone. They go for his throat, and it's excellent and totally exquisite. They bring up all of the past, his involvement with the Department of Defense, the money. Uh, he, they even called out Peter McCullough, Ryan Cole, and, and these other doctors that are finding themselves around Senator Ron Johnson. And why is it that it's just Malone and Cole and McCullough and a couple of others? Why isn't it the other individuals? Why isn't it the other individuals who are calling out the associations that these people have with these borderline nefarious groups, if not full-blown nefarious groups like the Department of Defense? They openly stated they don't trust Dr. Malone at all. And I, of course, have been in that camp very early, even after my school board speech, same thing. I mean, I immediately came out after that speech and I said, look, I'm not a fan of his. This guy doesn't sit well with me. And as time passes, people are figuring that out step by step, year after year, which is great. So I recommend going back and listening to that episode if you haven't. It's worth it. 
They do a very nice job breaking down a lot of those nefarious connections. Why is it that, again, those doctors are the only ones consistently being asked questions? I mean, they're perpetuating the virology lie. And Lee Merritt and Larry Pilevsky know that viruses aren't real. They know this. They've openly learned about this. They've openly stated it. Pilevsky said, look, I've known about this for 20 some odd years. He said, I didn't publicly speak about it other than practicing it within my own practice, that you shouldn't take shots, you shouldn't take drugs. They're poisons. They're all poisons. They're all bioweapons. That's the point. So, yeah, it was, it was just very well done, and it was refreshing to hear. And again, as you've heard me say on this show endless times, I've been following them since the beginning, certainly since the, uh, I would say, well, probably January, February, March of, uh, of 2021 when they started that channel. I've been watching those episodes and learning copious amounts of information, and that's led me down endless rabbit holes on my own. And then I, of course, bring that information here, and hopefully that, that bleeds off onto other people too. So there you go. But they're still relevant, and where, again, Dr. Tenpenny would, uh, I would say, potentially blow off the virology lie and not want to bring that up and not want to learn about it and discuss it, Lee Merritt doesn't have a problem doing that, and neither does Larry Pilevsky, which is great. So I enjoy listening to the two of them talk. I could listen to them all day long. It's excellent. This is yet another article, very quickly, that is describing again the real epidemic here and what is really the pandemic, which of course has to do with the jabbed and the compromised immune systems as a result. Um, this is from this year. This is from the WentworthReport.com by uh, David Archibald. It is titled COVID and Cancer The Epidemic Begins. This is brief, but it is direct and to the point. It says the following, quote, Western civilization decided to give itself several doses of spike protein and call that vaccination. One consequence of that is an impaired immune system. After the third dose, it says. Well, I would argue it's after the first, because the first one has killed people. With that aside for a minute, it says, as we recounted in this article, it says, briefly, the spike con converts the bulk of the immune system to treating infections as if they were an allergen. COVID has been going on for three years. Not really. It's just biological weapons have been going on for three years. And vaccination for two years, also bioweapons. So the effect on cancer incidents should be showing up in statistics, and so it is. And it has dramatically increased. It has spiked dramatically, ladies and gentlemen. Since the rollout of the jabs, I'm looking at the chart here, malignant neoplasms, cancer, have skyrocketed since the very beginning of 2021. They shot through the roof. And then, and we're talking, let's see, deaths per week that are cancer-related. Uh, 400 deaths per week by around the first quarter of 2021. That's huge. Then it starts to dip down and, and it decreases a little bit. And then when the boosters occurred, that's when it skyrocketed yet again. So the first and second shot did it. And then summer kicked in. And then booster shots came back in the 
spring and fall of 2021 and then throughout 2022, and there's been nothing but a dramatic increase in cancer cases. It says the following, quote, malignant neoplasms are in steep uptrend in the U.S., corroborating anecdotal reports of cancer incidents. Cancer deaths are now running about 400 per week above what it has been, amounting to an annualized rate of 20,000. It says, be aware that cancer deaths are a lagging indicator of the disease burden. That's correct. Which means there are copious amounts of other infections that, out, that basically outweigh and outrate cancer diagnosis. There's endless other illnesses, of course, out there. Cancer is just one of them. But it says a poison that comes in left-wing and right-wing varieties. Goes through a little, a little more uh, information on that. It says the left-wing half of, the, of America chose death enhanced by vaccination, whereas the right-wing half chose death by letter rip, with gaslighting uh, guiding both lots to their choice as a political decision. And again, the coercion that was involved and so on and so forth. You know, regardless of political persuasion, this ensnared numerous people, but it is proven statistically that it ensnared those that trust government, those that trust the pharmaceutical industry, those that trust the medical industry, and that the vast majority of them happen to lean toward the left. Why? Because the left tends to trust government, whereas those on the right tend not to. Unfortunately, that still ensnared plenty on the right, and that's the way that that goes. In conclusion, I'll say this. If you have not subscribed to or do not read Karen Kingston's substack, The Kingston Report, I highly recommend it. It's karenkingston.substack.com. Uh, she's got a number of articles. Again, all all the paperwork is there. All the definitions are there of this, of course, being a bioweapon. She lays it out perfectly. She's a regular guest on the Stu Peters show. She hits it out of the park pretty much every single time. One of her articles from March 11th clearly lays out that Pfizer knew that the mRNA vaccines, quote-unquote, bioweapons, did in fact contain and do in fact contain graphene oxide. Now, that does not surprise us. Point is, it's in their own paperwork. It's right there for, for everybody to see. Um, here's another one again, very recently from just a few hours ago. It says, dear Cong, it's titled dear Congress, ignoring Pfizer's bioweapon crimes doesn't make them go away. It makes the United States complicit in biowarfare. And they are point being too. anytime someone's yelling, China, 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 Wuhan, 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 ladies and gentlemen, it came from our government too. It came from Fort Detrick. It came from Ukraine, and it was pushed again by the pharmaceutical industry, in particular Pfizer, because Pfizer openly admitted allegedly in court that they simply carried out the fraud that the United States government told them to carry out. Pfizer was taking orders from the Department of Defense and countless other government agencies or private agencies, I'm sure. And then, of course, they're all getting kickbacks as a result, and there you go. But there's plenty of distraction 
that it's all China's fault, that it's the CCP and it's this and that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the United States of America. The United States of America openly engaged in the murder of their own citizens. Explaining that to someone who's injected themselves with this bioweapon is going to be a tough pill for them to swallow. But this, of course, is why they're not taught accurate history in school, and they have no grasp of reality. Uh, I'll end with this, actually. There's a video that was bouncing around. I also put it on my gab, and it's, it's sad. It really is. And I, and I want to I reiterate this because it does, it does bother me. There, it's, it's video of a man in Australia, and he's, he's in this downtown area, sort of in this you know, public urban park area, and there are individuals there who are anti-bioweapon activists, and they're laying out numerous and copious amounts of posters and pictures of the deceased as a result of the bioweapons. You see this guy, and he walks up to the crowd, and he, he starts yelling at all of them, asking them what they're doing. They shouldn't be doing this. None of this is true. Why are you lying to people about these dead people? He uses the word misinformation. You're spreading misinformation, and, and so on and so forth. What's sad is the look in his face. The look in the guy's face is complete and utter confusion. And somebody responded to me on Gab and said, this represents 90% of the Australian population. Now, a long time ago, you heard me bring up my story about Australian when I was there for about a week, giving a presentation at a, ironically enough, a mental and emotional health conference. Um, I too witnessed when I was there back in, that would have been April of 2019, well, let me see. It would have been March or April of 2019. I witnessed a copious amount of brainwashed people when I was there. It was it was very sad. Um, being awake, of course, you you surround yourself with other individuals and you know who is awake and who is asleep. And I can tell you that almost everybody, if not everyone at that conference, was dead asleep, along with the people that I had a brief interaction with sort of out and about. They had no idea what was going on in the world. They had no idea that that everything was on fire and that things were on the verge of a complete and utter collapse and that the COVID lie was the thing that was going to tip everything over because these were people that were going to be easily controlled and easily abused and easily coerced. And that's exactly what you see in this guy's face. You see just complete and utter confusion. Because he's, he's walking around with his mouth wide open. His eyes are as big as saucers. And he's, he's bouncing around these, these people, almost like he's in a nightmare. Like he's a, like he's a pinball in a pinball machine, and he's just very slowly, not quickly, but very slowly bouncing around these people who are around him, who, who know what's going on and know that the shots are killing people, and yet he can't come to grips with it. He's having a very hard time. So the police get called, and believe it or not, the police stand up for the protesters and for the people that are, that are putting their literature out on the ground and, and on park benches in XYZ. 
the police come to their aid and look at the guy and go, hey man, look, if you don't like the message they're sending, you know, you can you can walk in the other direction, but you can't cause a disturbance here. And he's like, wait a minute, what do you mean? Why don't, why are you letting them lie like this? Why are you letting them do these things? And he goes, look, man, people have been hurt by the jabs. This is, this is a thing. People have died from this. And he's going, what? Uh, police said that, what? And he's, he's just bouncing around and it's just the look on his face is complete and utter confusion. They have no idea what's going on, some of these people. And by some, of course, I'm talking at least half the world's population. They have no clue. And I just, I, I remember coming across that clip and thinking to myself, the look on his face is emblematic of, of what we're going to continue to see going forward here. In particular, again, with the, collapse, the collapsing of banks, that means credit card companies are going to start to collapse in the future too. I wouldn't be surprised if insurance companies start to collapse also. It's not just going to be the education business and education apparatus that folds. It will be many. And that's not a bad thing. It's a very, very good thing because we've all been robbed. We've all had numerous things stolen from us throughout this entire time and throughout our lives. And the one thing that they stole from us was our mind. The question now becomes in society, who decides to take their mind back and who does not? And not taking your mind back is not going to be a survivable skill. You're going to have to take your mind back. And now's the time. I mean, the time was earlier, clearly, but no time like the present, ladies and gentlemen. With that said, I will catch you on Friday. Thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.